Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 4. Last week, in the third installment of the Summary of Deuteronomy, I covered the middle portion of Moses' second address to the Israelite people. In that part of his speech, his overall theme was to avoid becoming like the Canaanites, especially once the people crossed the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land, a journey Moses knew they would be making without him. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This episode picks up in the latter part of that address, and with that, let's get started. Chapter 18 kicks off with a reminder of the role of the priest, who held from the tribe of Levi, Levitical priest. As Moses has told the people many times earlier in Deuteronomy, the Levites are receiving no territorial allotment in the promised land. They do receive a handful of cities, but in general, these were not well suited for agriculture, nor the raising of livestock, and obviously, they needed to eat. Moses tells the people that the Levites are allowed to consume the animals presented for sacrifice, along with the grain, oil, and wine presented as offerings. Like the other passages I've covered, Moses takes the opportunity to get more specific about this than he did in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He tells the people, This shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give the priest the shoulder, the two jaws, and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, your wine, and your oil, as well as the first of the fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. Moses also tells the people that a Levite priest is allowed to consume the allotted portion of offerings and sacrifices, even if he has income from outside sources, for example, the sale of property. Like he has done so many times, Moses quickly switches gears, without even double-clutching. This time, he's back on the subject of not taking any of the religious practices of the Canaanites. No child sacrifices, no divination, soothsaying, augering, sorcering, no casting of spells, or consulting ghosts or spirits, or seeking oracles from the dead. Similar to many of the things I've covered in the close to four years of the podcast, most of these need no explanation. The only one I had to look up was augering. This was, well, in many ways, still is, a person who observes natural phenomenon, like the behavior of birds, and then interprets these as an indication of divine approval or disapproval of a proposed action, a type of soothsaying, fortune-telling, and the like. Moses reminds the people that their ancestors said they never wanted to hear the voice of God. So, God spoke to Moses and he relayed the message to the people. And if you think it through, when Moses is gone, and who would relay God's message back? Moses tells the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. A footnote in the New Revised Standard tells us that prophet can alternatively be translated in the plural, so in the future there may be more than one. Then, the people are told how to discern a true prophet of God from a false one. God told Moses, who then relayed God's word to the people. 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods or presumes to speak in my name a word that I have not commanded that prophet to speak, that prophet shall die. You may say to yourself, How can we recognize a word that the Lord has not spoken? If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but the thing does not take place or prove true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be frightened by it. Once again, in the New Revised Standard, the footnote shows that prophet could be plural. Neither the NIV nor King James Version make the same notation. And that's chapter 18. Chapter 19 is more detail concerning the cities of refuge, a topic I've touched on a few times in the past. As a refresher, these were a handful of cities where a murderer could flee to escape a family bent on vengeance. More on that in a later episode. Moses tells the people to set up three cities and be careful in selecting the location so that they are roughly evenly spaced out. He then tells the people what kind of murder qualifies, or in our modern legal context more accurately described as manslaughter, and what does not. This time, in at least my opinion, the NIV does a better job translating, so I'll quote Moses from there. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally, without malice aforethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of the cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. Skipping ahead in the chapter a little, Moses also tells them, But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. Like so many things in the Old Testament, the passage not only gives us the history, but also insight into that place, time, and culture. The text tells us that a family can kill someone who, with intent, killed one of their family members. In our society, such murder for murder is not tolerated, and the second murder would be almost as heinous of a crime as the first, due to the similar intents of each of the perpetrators. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses is thinking ahead. He tells the people that if their territory grows larger, then more cities of refuge will be necessary, specifically telling them to add three more to the already mentioned three. In the middle of the chapter is a single sentence about the boundaries between different landowners. Don't dishonestly move the boundary marker, identified in the NIV as a stone. In the last portion of the chapter, Moses gives the people rules concerning witnesses, 
He touched on this before, a few chapters back, when he told the people that to be found guilty of heresy required two or three witnesses. In this chapter, he tells the people that the same standard applies to all crimes. Then he addresses false witnesses, ending the chapter with one of the more often quoted passages, especially by those outside of the religion. If a malicious witness comes forward to accuse someone of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest, and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges shall make a thorough inquiry. If the witness is a false witness, having testified falsely against another, then you shall do to the false witness just as the false witness had meant to do to the other. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The rest shall hear and be afraid, and a crime such as this shall never again be committed among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Obviously, in many modern instances, the quote given is out of context, and that's chapter 19. Moses changes course again in chapter 20, telling the people what to do and not do when they go to war. And his first piece of advice makes sense when you consider the reaction of the spies sent to Canaan some 40 years earlier. Moses tells the people that when they go out to war against their enemies and see horses and chariots, an army larger than their own, they shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord their God is with them, who brought them up from the land of Egypt. To help keep this top of mind, just before battle, the priest is to address the troops and offer a pre-written speech, saying, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near to do battle against your enemies. Do not lose heart, or be afraid, or panic, or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Then the officers are to address the men, and allow a few specific groups to go home before the battle. So, who is exempt and why? The officers are told to inquire, Has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. Moses then reiterates the rules of engagement that he laid down earlier. If they fight an enemy from outside of the borders of the promised land, they are to give the enemy a chance to surrender. If the enemy does, then the Israelites are to enslave their people. If they don't, when you win, kill all the adult males. The women, children, livestock, and spoils shall all be captured and kept. Presumably the women and children as slaves, though there is an exception I'll get to in a minute. But if the enemy is within the prescribed boundaries of the promised land, the Israelites are to kill everyone and not accept a surrender. Why? So that there's no chance of the Canaanite religion surviving. 
The last paragraph concerns trees found in an enemy's territory and what to do with them. Moses tells them, If you besiege a town for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you must not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. Although you may take food from them, you must not cut them down. Are trees in the field human beings that they should come under siege from you? You may destroy only the trees that you know do not produce food. You may cut them down for use in building siege works against the town that makes war with you, until it falls. And that's the chapter. Chapter 21 begins with Moses telling the people how to deal with an unsolved murder case. It should come as little surprise that this portion of the text isn't taught in the usual Sunday school classes. Once settled in Canaan, if a body is found in the countryside, the elders are to determine the closest town. The elders from that town are to provide a sacrificial cow, one that is presumably without blemish and has never been worked, likely one that has been set aside to be sacrificed in the temple or similar place. The cow is to be taken to a creek with running water and its neck broken. Then, in the presence of the local Levitical priest, the elders are to wash their hands over the cow. As they do so, they are to say, our hands did not shed this blood, nor were we witnesses to it. Absolve, O Lord, your people Israel, whom you redeemed. Do not let the guilt of innocent blood remain in the midst of your people Israel. If the elders do this, the murder will be atoned for, and the guilt of the murder purged from their midst. Moses then moves along to the treatment of female slaves, those captured during warfare. And if the unsolved murder part of his speech seemed a little peculiar, this one is even more so. I'll let Moses do the telling from the NIV, as it handles a section in the manner that will allow me to keep my iTunes clean rating. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. This passage shows that in ancient Israel, the times were different. In the next section, Moses addresses inheritance and polygamy at the same time. Essentially, if a man has two wives and likes one but not the other, he still has to give the firstborn's inheritance to his oldest son, even if he doesn't like the boy's mother. And the firstborn gets a double portion. And what's a double portion? The footnote says the Hebrew means two-thirds. Parents with unruly children, pay attention to what Moses tells the people next. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the gate of that place. They shall say to the elders of his town, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. 
He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. While he was on the subject of capital punishment, and in a section entitled Miscellaneous Laws in the New Revised Standard and Various Laws in the NIV, Moses tells the people that if they hang someone, to not leave them hanging on a tree all night. Why? Because it's humane and disrespectful to the person? No. Doing so will defile the land. Saul turned to Paul paraphrased this part of Moses' address in his letter to the Galatians, in chapter 3, when he wrote, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's chapter 21. If you're paying attention, and I hope you are, the last section of chapter 21 was titled Various Laws, but there was only one. The rest of these sundry statutes are found in chapter 22. I'll try to quickly run through them, but a forewarning. Moses was all over the place. If you see your neighbor's livestock, meaning ox or sheep, straying, do not be a mere spectator. Gather them and take them back to their owner. If you don't know who owns the beast, hold on to it until the owner comes to claim it. The same goes for your neighbor's donkey, clothing, and anything else. And if an ox or donkey falls over on the road, help it to get back on its feet. Men don't wear women's clothes. Women don't wear men's. Then one of the more random rules. If you happen upon a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with fledglings or eggs, with the mother sitting on the fledglings or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. Let the mother go taking only the young for yourself. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. A parapet is an upward extension of the wall at the edge of the roof. The general reasoning for this rule was to keep people who, for whatever reason, were up on the roof. A parapet would help to prevent them from falling off. Otherwise, the owner will face blood guilt. Don't sow your vineyard with a second kind of seed or the whole yield will have to be destroyed. Don't plow a field with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Don't wear clothing made of a mixture of linen and wool. Put tassels on the four corners of your cloak. Like I said, these were all over the place. Various laws indeed. The last part of the chapter concerns the rules of marriage. I'm going to skip this section, at least for this episode as it better aligns with the rules he gives the Israelites in Deuteronomy 24, which will be covered next week. The last chapter I'm reviewing this week is Deuteronomy 23, which begins with Moses relaying rules about who is and is not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. Which, before beginning, that phrase needs a bit of defining. And that isn't straightforward, as there are various interpretations, some scholars consider it the same as being included in the citizenry of the nation of Israel, meaning the ancient society. Others say it meant being one of the various leaders of the nation, and there are many who see it as something between. You pick. The first group of excluded people are men who have had injuries to their private parts. Want specifics? Read the text. Next are people born of what the New Revised Standard describes as an illicit union, but not just the children, also their kids, all the way to the tenth generation. 
so goes the Old Testament. No Ammonites or Moabites, also to the tenth generation. And for them, unlike the prior two groups, Moses gives a reason, because they didn't aid the wandering Israelites with food or water, and also because they brought Balaam in to curse them. But Moses wasn't done with the Moabites and Ammonites. He also tells the Israelites, You shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. Forgiveness? That was still a millennium away. He takes a different tact with the Edomites and Egyptians, telling the people, You shall not abhor the Edomites, for they are your kin. You shall not abhor any of the Egyptians, because you are an alien residing in their land. The children of the third generation that are born to them may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. In the middle of the chapter, Moses gives the people various rules about what makes a person unclean, in this part of the text focusing on normal bodily functions. And that's enough about that. He addresses what the people are to do with slaves that run away from foreign lands to Israel. Essentially, they are allowed to live freely. He gives them rules concerning prostitution and covers the subject of interest. Essentially, the Israelites cannot charge each other interest on loans. As for loans to foreigners, they are fair game for interest. He tells them they have to honor their vows, and if they cannot, then don't make a vow. Moses ends the chapter with two rules that seem to make little sense to our modern world, and therefore speak more to their ancient culture. He tells the people, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in a container. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And that's the chapter, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in chapter 24 with the rules concerning marriage and divorce. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.